Good morning. So good to be back together today, uh, especially after a busy week for a lot of us. Some of us were made to be unbusy this week. I know many of us were down for the count. It was uh, pretty wild and crazy. We had a lot to pray for on our, our Tuesday night prayer time, uh, a lot of interceding for the life of those who were unwell. And so I don't know about you, but this week with the cooler temperatures, I know that tomorrow is supposed to be like 24 degrees, but it felt like this week with the cooler temperatures in the morning, a page was kind of flipped from summer to autumn. I feel like we're maybe going back that way, but in a, in a lot of ways, that's what we're doing now is we're, we're turning the page from our summer series that Neil finished up last Sunday on Jesus' I Am statements in the Gospel of John, and we're looking at our, our new series that we're going to cover over the course of eight weeks entitled The Church. We're going to look at the doctrine of the church. What does the Bible say about the church? We're going to spend the month of September looking at this, and then we're very intentionally going to take a four-week breath to let those things marinate while we look at uh, the month of October, some things, and then come back in November to finish out this series, which will then lead us into Advent. It's right around the corner. That's amazing, isn't it? Uh, but today is really an introduction to this this topic and this this big overarching uh, thought of the church and and today we're looking at the birth or the origin of the church and not just from a historic perspective not just looking at the history of the church but really why is the church even a thing why does it exist why are we who we are and in thinking about the church's origin how should that impact our lives so if you have a bible today i invite you to turn with me to ephesians chapter 2 uh, and we're going to look at the end of chapter 2, starting in verse 17 through the end, verse 22. And Paul, I, I love this letter. Uh, it, is, it was meant, he wrote it to, uh, for the purpose of it being circulated amongst many, many churches in, an, in a region, uh, including Ephesus. But he starts off in chapter 1 with just this amazing rich passage on the nature of salvation and then moving into chapter two he wraps that up and begins to talk about the unity that we have even though we come from different backgrounds some from jewish backgrounds and some from gentile backgrounds and some from very different cultural backgrounds yet we are united in christ and then he gets to the end of chapter two to our passage and this is what we find and the words will be on the screen behind me and starting in verse 17 uh Paul writes this, that he came, Jesus came and proclaimed the good news of peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of God's household built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone in him. The whole building being put together, it grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In Him, you are also being built together for God's dwelling in the Spirit. And here's the main thought that we're going to consider today. Jesus didn't just save you from something. He also saved you to something. He didn't just save you from your sin when you put faith in Him and when you trusted in Him, but He also saved you to living as part of the body of Christ. And that's important for us today. Uh, since the beginning of the year, 
the elders of our church have been in a conversation that's led us to consider spelling out the expectations specifically for what our elders should have for one another and what we should have as being elders. And as we shepherd, as we lead, as we invest in the church, what expectations should we have upon ourselves based on what we see in 1 Timothy 3 and in Titus chapter 1? And it, it gets kind of complicated because we're made up of a, a mixed group of men. You know, Paul works a job full time that's not in traditional ministry. It's, it's in the world. I, I, I'm a little unique in that I work in full time ministry, but my whole my full time job isn't oriented just around DBC. And Mark is employed by the church. So how do we in this mixture, how do we reconcile the all of the expectations we're meant to have? And uh, as you can imagine, there's been a lot of dialogue around this, especially as because it's not just about us, especially as we think forward about what's to come. We think about places like Ridgery and and other 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 churches we might plant. How how do we think now and have a right perspective now on the future so that we lay the groundwork for what's to come and. And uh, and because we can't afford to be reactive in that, we have to be proactive in those things. Otherwise, we we fall into to trap and danger in there. But it's easy just to read through First Timothy three and Titus one and say, well, just fulfill those qualifications for elders, and you'll be good. You'll be all set. But it's a little more complicated uh, to specifically spell out what that looks like on a monthly and weekly basis. And that's been such a rich and, 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 and important conversation, hard at moments conversation, because it deeply affects the mission of our church. And, and it, it, especially as we strive to, to model living out the Christian life for the rest of the church family. So the next natural step out of that conversation is, well, if that's the expectations for the elders, what's the expectations for the church family then? What should we expect of the church? What should the church expect of one another? And, and that leads us to where we are today in this conversation, this beginning point, just to ask the question, what does the Bible say about this? Not does what does TJ think about this or Mark or Paul or any one of us here, but what does the Bible say about this? And in many situations, in many places, especially around the Western world, there's a misconception of what the church actually is and what it should be. The church in the West has become very individualistic. We've become consumeristic. We're, we're so used to picking and choosing online, getting things right now when we want them, having an instant gratification to tailored towards my needs and my preferences that we have now translated that to church in a lot of ways across the Western world. And, and as a people, we can easily fall into the trap of thinking that church is all about me. It's all about my preferences, my tastes, what I want. Uh, it, it, it's all about my, my preferences, as opposed to the radical, sacrificial nature that we see Jesus advocate for and his followers, early followers who wrote most of these scriptures, who, what they advocate for in the New Testament. We're hoping that this series will help us as we consider what it means to be part of a community of people who live on mission together, who care for one another, who do exactly what we just read in that passage during our prayer time, who reflect what we see in Scripture. So how do we uphold what we see and work out the tension? Because it's easy. I could say the same thing. Well, do what the Bible says. Well, there then lies a tension as we think about our normal routines of our jobs and our families and all of our daily life? How do we work that out? And how do we connect together as a family of faith? 
So answering that question, it seems pretty daunting. Uh, so where do you start in a, in a conversation like that? Well, as a people who value God's word, that's our starting point. We go back to God's word. And in God's word, we're going to go back to the very beginning and just kind of think about from the beginning, what have things been like? Well, as you look for answers on this, going back from the beginning, from the beginning of the Bible, in starting in Genesis chapter 3, God has been about redeeming a people for himself from every language, every tribe, every nation, every people group on the earth. God has been about redeeming a people for himself. And as you work through the Bible, you see that the promise is that he's going to redeem a people from everywhere, from every people. And it, and it all comes to kind of a head at the very end of the Bible in Revelation 7-9, where you see that people from ev- made up of every ethnicity, every nation, every language, standing around the throne of God, worshiping, beholding God, together united around that God that they're worshiping. And that's what we're working towards as a people. The, the church is both the culmination of that promise as well as the means of accomplishing that task. So the local church, churches like ours, are the means by which God's creating that picture, that picture of the promise, as well as the instrument that he's using to accomplish that end goal. So over the next few weeks, we're going to see that this, uh, this is true from God's word, that this started long ago. And as you read through the Old Testament, you encounter multiple times where God creates a covenant. He enters into a covenant with people. There are six throughout the Old Testament, and we could spend absolute weeks just looking at the covenants and how this started, but I'm going to spend about 15 seconds summarizing. I'm sorry. You can go back and read it for yourself if you want to. I would highly encourage you to do that, in fact. God makes covenants with his people throughout the Old Testament. After man's rebellion against God in the Garden of Eden, we see him do this in a few places. Most central to this story, he makes the covenant with Abraham, that Abraham's descendants Even though Abraham is very old, very far removed from childbearing years, Sarah's very old, very far removed from childbearing years, God is going to miraculously work in such a way that he's going to make Abraham's descendants number like the stars in the night sky and the sand on the seashore, like the grains of sand. God promises, here's the central part, God promises that one uh, one day Abraham will have a descendant that is going to bless every nation of the earth, all peoples of the earth. We see God's covenant to David in 2 Samuel 7. You can go back and read through that. Again, that that God will one day allow someone from David's lineage to be a rescuer, the king, who's going to establish an unending kingdom. And these covenants, they all point to Jesus. Every time they're pointing forward to Jesus, who would come and make a way for humanity to have restored relationship with God. And that's what we see in our passage in Ephesians 2 that we just read. For centuries, all of this has been leading up to Jesus. And there were prophets who were the mouthpiece of God. They they spoke the message of God and declared the message of God to the people. Uh, And in the New Testament, we see that the foundation continues on as the apostles, those who were set apart by Jesus, brought instruction and leadership to the church. And that's that's what verse 21 is referencing. But the church finds its true origin point not in the prophets, not in the apostles, but in Christ himself. That's because Jesus is the fulfillment of all of those Old Testament prophecies, all those Old Testament covenants, to the extent that the church was birthed out of a new covenant in Jesus. We just took communion 
We just talked about that, how Jesus fulfilled all those things that God required of us. He was the perfect standard that we could not be. So he has now uh, entered into a new covenant with us, a new binding agreement, if you will. But this time, God's promise is not contingent upon our obedience, of us obeying all the laws, of us doing all the sacrifices. Instead, Christ now is the one who is contingent upon. God looks at him, at his, at his obedience, at his faithfulness, and now God, through Christ, has relationship with us. So throughout Jesus' ministry, uh, Jesus looked forward to the church. We, uh, we know that we think about the actual birth of the church. Jesus made a way for its existence. And the church was inaugurated on the day of Pentecost when Jesus' followers gathered together to pray. There's 120 up in the room, and the Spirit falls on them. They are baptized for the first time ever in the Spirit, that, that the Spirit comes permanently to dwell within them. And, and we know that throughout his ministry, Jesus did look forward. He, he said things like, on this rock, I will build my church, as he talked about Peter's leadership. And it's only after the ascension of Jesus back into heaven that the Spirit is given in a way that he, he never had been before. And one of the clearest ways we see this is through the differences in the apostles pre-Pentecost and post-Pentecost. Yeah, that's it. Post-Pentecost. Uh, before the Spirit comes, think about these guys. I... I I, I, there's so much hope in my heart as I think about pre and post, these guys, of what God did in their life. Before the Spirit come, comes and dwells the, the disciples, they're a group who are characterized by things like a perpetual lack of faith, stubbornness, a, a continual lack of basic understanding of what Jesus is, is trying to say, the simplest things Jesus is trying to say. Uh, they were fearful. They bickered over who was most important in the group or who was going to sit at Jesus' right hand. They, they debated about those things. But after Pentecost, on that day and moving forward, we see a completely different picture. We see people full of faith. We see humility, which was not present before. We see sacrificial love towards one another. They were bold with the gospel. They were seemingly fearless as they faced persecution and danger, even going so far as to thank God for letting them endure persecution for the name of Christ for letting them be the ones to walk through that. Our, our passage helps us to see this, that how all of this starts. It's, that is because of the work of Jesus. So look back. Let's read this again now that we've kind of had that intro. Uh, look at verses 17 again. It says, He came, Jesus came and proclaimed the good news of peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through Him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then... You are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of God's household. It starts with the first words of verse 17, that he came. Jesus came. He entered into our world. He entered into our broken world. He came to the earth. He left the perfection of heaven, and he stepped into our broken world, surrounded by brokenness, by suffering that we see all around us every day. And he came to a people who were continually rebellious. And that includes you and me, continually rebellious. Then in that same verse, we see the work that he did, that he proclaimed good news of peace to us. He brought us peace with God. He, he sorted out the rebellion by bringing peace. Verse 17 says, we were once far away, separate from God. 
that has changed in Christ. Before trusting, before trusting Jesus as the Lord of our lives, the Bible says we were separated from God. That if we've never put faith in Christ, and maybe that's where you are still today, and maybe you've never actually taken that step of faith, that in that day, before making Jesus the Lord of our lives, we were separated from him. Jesus came and lived a life free of rebellion and brokenness. He lived a life totally free of sin. And we've said over and over again over the last couple of years that sin is what? Anything we think, say, or do that goes against God. Sin is anything we think, say, or do that goes against God. Jesus lived free of those things. And though he was innocent, he died to take the wrath of God for those things. And then he rose in victory to prove that he actually conquered sin in the grave. Scripture tells us that if we will trust that Jesus is actually who he claimed to be and did what the Bible claims he did, that we can have forgiveness, peace, hope, and relationship with God. And that's what this passage is talking about, that God makes us part of his family. This passage tells us that he brings us near and gives us a new identity. Spiritually speaking, our surnames are changed. And we're brought into God's household, God's family. We are citizens of a new people. All of that is amazing. And all of that is worth worshiping God and celebrating over. But that's not the end of the story. We aren't brought into God's family never to interact with the rest of the family. It's kind of a strange thought, isn't it? Jesus didn't make it possible for us to be forgiven of sin and to have restored relationship with God just so that we could be lone rangers in our faith. No, he, he also made the way for us to have restored relationship with one another, and that's by God's design. Look at verse 19. It says, So then you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of God's household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone. In him, the whole building being put together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you, also, you are also being built together for God's dwelling in the Spirit. You weren't just saved from something. You were saved to something. You and I, in Christ, are now part of the family of God, the church community. And this passage points us to the fact that being part of the church community carries with it a deep connection and a deep sense of togetherness. We are saved to something. Now the context, the, the context of our lives are changed and we're able to have relationships with one another and effectively live out life within the body. It, it's a total change, not just on an individual level, but now on a communal corporate level. There's a, there's a change, and it, and it seems easy for us to get on board when people come to faith with life change. We're all excited about life change until we start to think about what that means for us as a church family. Boy, I, that has, that inf impacts my routine and my free time and, the, and some of my freedoms that I have. But what about when transformation happens and there's, there's just as massive of a change in how we live our lives and how they're meant to be oriented in terms of community? Each of the verses in our passage speak to this, this new togetherness in Christ. Let's just run through this. I want to point this out to you. Verse 17, we're made to be at peace, not just with the Father, but also with one another. Verse 18, that both, together those who are near, together those who are far away, both now have the same access to the Father. 
We have access through the same spirit. We're united in this way. Verse 19, we're fellow citizens, not individual citizens. We're together. We're fellow citizens now of a new people group. He continues on in 19 that we're members together of God's household. We're now all part of the same family together. Verse 20, we share the same cornerstone, that the stone that's used to build the rest of the building around. We all share that one same cornerstone, that our lives are now being built around the same stone, and we're united because of that. Not only that, but in Christ, we're all collectively being built into the temple of God, which we're going to talk about in a minute. That's just mind-blowing that he write that. Verses 21 and 22, it says, As we walk through sanctification, that, that lifelong process of being conformed more and more and more every day into the likeness of Christ, that the whole building, all the parts of the church are continually being built together into the temple of God, God's dwelling place in the Spirit. God's intent is that we grow in our community together as a pattern of life. And we actually fully become the picture of God on, uh, together. We, we can't do that on our own. We can't fully image who God is, is what this passage is saying. But we together as the body with all of our distinctive personalities and all of our distinctive talents and passions and, and giftings together can image this beautiful picture of who God is. We're being saved to be members of the church. We're meant to live life a lot closer than many of us probably are used to. Uh, for many Christians, including a lot of us here, probably the normal experience of church is just show up on a Sunday, participate in the time, have the coffee and tea, and then go on our merry way, only to leave all of the contact, leave it until the next week. We come back together and we do it all again, and we're joyful together. We are excited to see one another, but we're very content just to kind of leave it during the week. Uh, we tend to have our own individual routines and lives during the week and then come back to do it all again on a, on a Sunday. But as we're going to see, not just today, but over the next several weeks, there's a deeper rhythm and connectedness that we're meant to share. I, I have a friend in ministry in Chicago who uh, just got his newsletter this week, and he's talking about a family that just came to faith in their ministry from a Jewish background. And, uh, and just an amazing story of this family Trusting in Christ, having the Old Testament, having coming from a Jewish background, being uh, very devoted in their Judaism, but now believing in Christ and trusting in Christ and so excited about their new faith. And now to recognize as they begin to walk out this new faith in Christ, they're met with a pretty harsh reality. In their area, it seems like for most Christians, the weekly Sunday service of the gathering is the time that most of the spiritual life happens. Whereas in their old life, throughout the week, they had this routine of, of the family being having, saturating their hearts and their minds with Old Testament scriptures, teaching their children how to memorize the scriptures, having feast days and holidays throughout the month and throughout the year where they're continually reminded of the greatness of who God is. And coming out of Judaism, they had this routine. And, and now, as they look around at their new believing friends, they see nothing like that. They find that most of their new friends have nothing like that in place in their families or in their individual lives, much less within the life of the church family. Yet the new way in Christ was supposed to be filled with hope and supposed to be filled with, with freedom and community and family. And that's a pretty harsh reality and indictment upon 
the local church. And granted, that's not the story of every local church. But I believe if we're honest this morning, it's probably more reflective of us than we would like it to be. This was not what the church was supposed to be or meant to be. New life in Christ provides us with the opportunity to have a vibrant relationship with Jesus, not just individually, but together as a family. And whether we want to admit it or not, we need this. We need it. It's not that this is a better option. No, we actually need this as followers of Jesus to fully live out all that God intends for us. Now, I I recognize that many might struggle with some of what I'm saying this morning, um, especially when it comes to imagery around the family. Many of us come from backgrounds where the family unit is broken or fractured, so the idea of being family together doesn't seem like a very positive thing. But in a healthy family, the rhythm of life is one where you spend time together. It is encouraging. It is uplifting. It is meant to be building up one another. You live in a way that's loving and united. The follower of Jesus was never meant to live life alone. You were not meant to live isolated from the rest of the body of Christ. God's design was to redeem a people for himself. Not individuals, not even groups of individuals, but a people for himself. Every covenant ever made in the Old Testament reinforces this. You see it in the central part of every single one of those covenants where God declares essentially that I will be their God and they will be my people. Look at verse 19. It says, So then you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with the saints, members of God's household. Before Christ, we were like spiritual orphans. In becoming a follower of Jesus, you are adopted into God's family. As a member of his household, consider those you know who have adopted and gone through that process. For their families, their child isn't adopted into the family only to have visitation every once in a while. The the child isn't brought into the family just to kind of check in every once in a while or every so often. No, there's a, a complete, total integration that happens that all of life revolves now around the family, time spent together making lasting connections. That child becomes 100% part of the family, not just in name, but in a new, complete lifestyle, all of life, dynamic. This same dynamic should be reflective of us as the spiritual life, as a spiritual family. Now, because of the work of Christ in our lives, the follower of Jesus views life through the lens of my spiritual family. As followers of Jesus, what, what we find in Scripture says this about this new way of life. Look, look back at verses 19 to 22. So then, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of God's household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone. In him, the whole building being put together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you are also being built together for God's dwelling in the Spirit. What we see here is a picture of a new citizenship. Over the years, I've traveled back and forth to the States to see family and take care of things there and visit family. But there have been many occasions where I've come back into the country and uh, and have 
getting ready to go through that queue in the passport control line, and uh, which can be chaos. It can be uh, it, you just never know what that experience is going to be like. And uh, many times I've been diverted into a separate queue to my chagrin because it's like, oh god, not this queue, uh, because my the color of my passport would be different than everyone else entering the country, and everyone else that gets to come on home, come back in. And, uh, I, and so eventually, I, you know, I had my visa, which I thought would be fine. Nope, still have to go to this queue. And then we got permanent residency, not quite citizenship, but permanent residency. Got that little biometric car that gives me permanent indefinite leave to remain. And nope, still need to go to this line because my citizenship is in a different country. In Christ, spiritually, it's like we've been given a new passport. The color has changed on our passport. We are citizens of a different kingdom now. We're all together united by this citizenship because we share the same king and the same residence. We're members and partakers together in the new covenant in Jesus. Our passage says here that we're being built into a building, and not just any building, a temple in the Lord. This is such a vivid picture for us today, just of how closely we're meant to relate to one another. In God's design, he's continually growing and maturing us, fitting the whole church community together like the bricks of a building. That's pretty close, the bricks of a building. I don't know if you've ever seen uh, <laughs> you know, a mason work and do his job. It's, those bricks, it's not like there's a lot of space between them. No, they are fit together tight. They are sealed together. They are stuck. They are bound together. It is in God's design. He's continually growing and maturing us, fitting us together, the whole church together like the bricks of a building. But not just any building, the temple of God. What is the temple? What, what was the temple in the Old Testament? It was the place where God manifested his presence amongst the people. It's where the people would go to be near to God. They could draw near to him. They, they could make sacrifices and atone for their sin. Well, now in Christ, the spirit of God indwells us. But as we live life together, exercising our gifts and loving one another sacrificially, reaching out to those who are around us, to the community around us, to the world around us, this passage is telling us that we are together able to be a more complete picture of who God is to the world around us through our loving one another, sacrificing for one another, our encouraging one another, just enduring alongside one another, the relationship we have together. We are a kind of bridge to those around us who are far from God. As you read through verse 21, I hope, I hope you see that it, it's only when the building, the church community, is submitting to the Lord's fitting us together and we're living out life together that we find our effectiveness and fulfill our purposes at the church, as the church. So all of these things, being, being citizens, being part of the new building, the togetherness of what we see throughout the passage, these are all why our church holds to covenant membership. That's why we believe in this, covenant membership in our local church. We're united by covenant and membership together. And that speaks to the commitment that we have to one another and the devotion that we have to one another in Christ. And it's why we're intentional to affirm that covenant. That every, come every January, we know that that's our pattern of life. We're going to 
I'll pass out those covenants and reread it. Do you still affirm this? I think I do. Well, there's a spot for you to assign to sign at the bottom because we want to profess this is our commitment that we have to one another. Yes, it's a piece of paper. I get that. But it's a symbolic gesture that, yeah, I'm committed to you and you're committed to me. And we're going to live life together as the pattern of life. So if you consider yourself to be part of DBC and have never pursued membership, man, you are missing out. God intended for you to relate to the local church through membership. And if you have questions about that, love to talk about that. If you have pushback about that, I would love to talk about that. Let's, let's do that together. We're close to the end of our time. Don't worry. Uh, but I just want to stop and acknowledge something that there, there is no doubt in my mind, on at least some level in your hearts and minds, at some point in the room, some of you are having some trouble with what I'm, I'm saying this morning. I, I believe that. Um, for us, as a people of this culture and this time in history, how could that not be the case? We are all so individualistic. I, in my own heart, have problems with some of this, not because it's wrong, but because I am who I am. You are who you are. We are products of what we're products of. I'm with you in that, that it runs counter to our culture to, to live this way. The friction with this is not necessarily with the reading of this passage and others like it, but in the implementation, the application, when it comes to actually relinquishing some of our individualistic habits, striving to live a different way. The church is meant to be part of the fabric of our life experience. It's the canvas on which our lives are meant to be painted. So much of life, of our lives were meant to filter through the lens of the family of faith. That word church has never been meant to describe a place that we go to or an hour on a day of the week. Nor was it meant to be a compartment, one compartment of many in our lives. And maybe you push back on this and saying, yeah, we just feel like you're going a little overboard with this. My life's too busy. It's not practical. It's not feasible. Those expectations are just a little too high to that sentiment, I would simply respond by saying that regardless of our reasoning to the contrary, when you read through the New Testament, what I'm advocating for is actually what you see. And we're going to unpack that over the next several weeks. Um, if you read this honestly, and don't pick and choose, but honestly read. A while back, I uh, was reading through Sinclair Ferguson's book on church membership entitled Devoted to God's Church. I was reading it kind of in advance of, of this series and, uh, and I highly recommend it, by the way. It's such a good read. But in closing, I just want to share a quote from Ferguson on this exact subject. Uh, bear with me because this is a bit of a passage, but it's all going to be on the screen behind me. Uh, Ferguson writes this on this exact pushback that, that I've just mentioned. He says, most of us have our roots in a, fa a family life. We also have a vocation in life that usually takes us out of our home and family context for many hours each week. Then... We're also citizens and have specific privileges and responsibilities in relation to people around us in the context of society. And then, if we're Christians, there's the church. How are these life spheres related to one another in a well-ordered Christian life? That's a major point of discussion. But even the text we have mentioned already suggests that for Christians, the church is central. It's not an added extra, the icing on the cake of a good life well-lived. Rather, our life in the church lends its atmosphere to our social life. It energizes us in our vocational life to be salt and light in the world. And it's a basic dimension of, not merely an optional add-on to, our family life. 
In fact, from one point of view, the church is so central to the New Testament's vision of the Christian life that in some senses is even more basic than the most basic of these other spheres, family life. We need to think about this carefully, and its significance may well dawn on us slowly. But it is the logical implication of at least three of Jesus' hardest sayings. Now, we don't have time to go through all three this morning, but I highly recommend the book to you. We're going to look at the first one he says here. One, whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Matthew 10, 37. Here, Jesus sets our ultimate priorities. He comes first. If that's the case, then his family has a certain kind of priority over my own family. Of course, by God's grace, my family life is meant to fit in wonderfully with the purposes of Jesus. But the priority is not negotiable. If push comes to shove... Christ and his people come first. You and I weren't just saved from something. We were saved to something. And in the coming weeks, we're going to unpack more and more of what this connectedness within the body looks like on a practical level. But as we consider the application of all of this, I just want to say to you that in pursuing this, this connection that we're talking about, there is so much joy to be found. This isn't meant to lead you into a life that's weighed down by guilt. It's not meant to be heavy-handed from our leadership. It's actually for your good and for our good as a church. When we orient our lives this way, we find something that is beautiful, worthwhile, something that's full of love. And that's because this was God's idea. It was not our idea. And we're calling all of us as a church community to align our lives with something that's God's design. And if that's the case, the only thing that can be found is flourishing and joy, even if hardship follows. So I leave you with this thought, that God is building up the temple of the Lord, the building of God. You are an integral part of that building. You are. Whether you want to be or not, whether you like it or not, you are an integral part. The building isn't complete without you your unique personality, your giftings, your spiritual giftings, your talents, your passions. So two questions this morning. Is your life oriented toward being the brick in the building that God has made you to be? And does your regular week, regular week reflect connection to the rest of the church? Or is it just something you experience on Sundays? There's so much more to experience for all of us. Every single one of us can grow in this. And I urge you just to assess honestly where you are in this. And if you find that your heart just kind of recoils a bit from some of what I've been saying today, I just ask, would you be humble enough to take some time to ask, why do I find this to be difficult? What are the origins of those, those feelings? And let's have a conversation. I would love to have conversation. Mark would love to have conversation about that. The church is God's design for you. The church is God's instrument in this world. Being part of the church causes your life and the lives of those within the rest of the body to flourish. You weren't just saved from something. You were saved to something. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you are so good to us, that you give us all that we need. And that includes the rest of the body of Christ, that you've given us the gift of the family of faith today. Help us as a people to just to, to lean into this, to explore, Lord, how can we more accurately reflect who you are as your people? How can we be more effective in this? 
how can we as individuals do our own parts to be the bricks in those buildings? Lord, I pray that you would give our hearts uh, the humility that we all need to ask that of our, of our own lives, Lord. Help us to, to assess accurately where we are in this and to be bold enough to take the steps that, that are needed. We love you, we love you, we love you, God, and we submit all that we are to you. In Jesus' name I pray.